all would love that. If we as a church can get into the Word corporately as well and feast on the Scriptures. So we're going to begin at verse number 6 of first chapter of Galatians 1 verse 6. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. The might of and the flight from the gospel is how I'd like to title this message. Uh, last week in verses here in this chapter indicate the might of the gospel, how powerful the gospel is. The gospel wasn't something new that was introduced into the New Testament, though you could say there were highlights of the gospel that could never have been preached with the same degree of emphasis and truth because Jesus obviously had not yet come and died. But now that he does, now it's go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That remission of sin should be preached in my name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, the call of Paul, who be, who's an extremely significant character, uh, brother in the Lord's hands, he's a chosen vessel, Jesus says, a chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. So he had a very unique calling. He's classified as an apostle. He had seen the Lord. He had uh, seen the gospel fruit. And he became a father of many people, as he says that uh, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 4.15. But you can imagine if you were the apostle Paul or any other apostle who's commissioned by Christ to go and spread the gospel to a world that was filled with what? Paganism and Judaism. There wasn't really any atheism. We don't come across, do we? I don't think so. I think everybody believed in the higher powers, the gods, the uh, spirits that controlled the world. And I think wherever you went, there was always a recognition that there was something, someone, some being greater than themselves. But Paul's mission particularly was one to the Gentiles. Ironically, Paul goes to synagogues, which becomes his outpost many times. If you go, trace Paul's travels in the book of Acts, he makes the synagogue to be his diving board, where he's going to send off from. Now, you can imagine the conflicts that he would and did encounter. And we kind of sense that too sometimes. You know, people that may be new to the Bible and even old to the Bible oftentimes have a difficulty in trying to reconcile the Old and the New Testaments. In some cases, we must admit, it almost seems like we're reading two different books. One that's 
in this category and another one in that category. And sometimes we don't see the network of connection between the two testaments. I'm sure you've come across that. I remember a long time ago when I was first saved, there was a, a, an individual who said, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. That would be a very emphatic way of trying to describe the difference between the old and the new by categorizing God in that way. But we do recognize that there are distinctives and we wonder how one sort of breeded the other one. And let me try to give you a simple illustration uh, of my own that uh, may help us understand that a little bit. It's not perfect, but let's, let's hear it anyway. We all know that it was not like a day that was appointed for Christianity to take over the management of God's redemptive people. It wasn't like, okay, this is going to be the start of a new day, everybody listen up. The past is over with, now it's starting afresh. That's not how Christianity was uh, introduced. It wasn't like a food chain bringing out a clothing store chain, closing out a a clothing store chain uh, that needed major renovations in entirely a new personnel. But rather, it was like a supermarket chain taking over a convenience store operation. Some of the personnel acquainted with the nature of the business would be kept, but other employers hired to handle the departments that they were unfamiliar with to the existing staff. Also, a new management team drafted to run affairs in accord with the chain regulations. You see, in Christianity, the good news of a risen Christ, the everlasting gospel, brings in multitudes of Gentiles from every tribe, nation, and peoples. And therefore, the enlarged house of God made new house rules to accommodate the new character. Jesus says you don't put new wine into old bottles or the old bottles will burst. It's important that we understand how the one feeds into the other, and I'm not going to be talking about that this morning, but I want us to understand that there were definitely some tensions and frictions when Christ is preached as the Messiah, as a risen one who's ascended into heaven, who's now become the merciful and faithful and new high priest over the house of God displacing the earthly temple which has no longer any need to serve the people. It's basically being put out of business. It's under the church of God, the the people of God, you could say, are under new management. So the old has been now closed. But it just didn't happen overnight. There was not an abrupt ending of one and the starting of another. There was a transition period. So Paul had this task, so to speak, of trying to introduce the gospel of Christ and to present the truth about Jesus being the head of the church in such things as elders and deacons and government of the local churches, of of a church here in this city and another church in that city. There's no longer a central location that all the people of God would have to flock to like they did in the Old Testament. They would all go to the temple and that was their place of worship. And anyone that would offer offerings in another place, that was sacrilegious. That That was sinful for them to do that. Paul wrote 13 epistles, the 14th being 
The book of Hebrews, which I don't think myself that Paul was the author of, but for sure we all agree that the other 13 epistles were written by Paul. I mentioned last week how Paul introduces those epistles with the, that common phrase, uh, grace and peace, to those that he was addressing. But in each of these, we have certain, and I'm going to try to highlight so that we can sort of maybe get an idea of how does the book of Galatians fit into all of the other epistles of Paul? What is Paul dealing with? And what we're going to discover here is that all of these churches that were sent letters, there was problems in each of these churches, almost exclusively. There's things that have to be addressed, so the epistles are corrective. They're instructional, and they're trying to correct some errors of things that were going on. So if we start with the book of Romans, and it's hard to just pinpoint one particular thing, and I'm going to pinpoint one thing or two in each of them, that may not necessarily be the sum of it all, but I'm going to just try to hit some of the points so that you get an idea of what were these epistles all about? What were they addressing? What were some of the underlying motives for the epistles? In the book of Romans, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. The book of Corinthians, the effects of false apostles on the Corinthians. They were making much of men making this one a apostle, special apostle, and that one. And there were false apostles that were coming in that were teaching them faulty doctrines. The book of Philippians, what's the point there? He's trying to get them to strive together. you got the Euodius and Syntyche that are at odds with one another, that are not of the same mind. There's friction in the church between the, the believing family of God and Paul's trying to motivate them that they would strive together in one mind. The book of Colossians, he wants to assure them of their fullness in Christ that they didn't mean anything else, that they'd had a completeness before God that was acceptable and there was no other greater standing than that of having the fullness of Christ dwelling and living in them and their completeness from that. In Thessalonians, we have the conflict over the second coming, the timing of it, when it would occur, did it occur, uh, who would be caught up in it and so forth and so on. And there was obviously those that were so caught up on the imminency of Christ's second coming that they were idle and they weren't working. Well, Paul has to correct that and says that if so, that you need to separate from them if they don't accept the admonition. Now, the book of Ephesians, we don't find this is not a corrective epistle. Interestingly, the book of Romans is written to the saints at Rome. To the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, it's written to the church of God at Corinth. To Colossians, it's written to the church of Colossae. To the Thessalonians, I believe it's a church there as well. To Galatians, it's to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Ephesians, again, it's just general to the saints of Ephesus. Now Paul has four personal epistles. First and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. He's writing as a spiritual father to other individual people, Timothy and Titus particularly, who were sort of delegates of the apostle. And Philemon, of course, there was a personal matter that he was trying to settle with him as far as uh, the slaves and, and so on and so forth. So, now what about the book of Galatians? What is our theme here? I think this has a lot to do with our understanding of this passage that we're going to look at here in verse 6. Um, which says, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word astonished, that word could be translated, I am surprised, I am shocked, I am awed that you would turn from the gospel to another gospel. Another word would be amazed. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Can we get that verse up, Michael 6? Is that uh, possible? Get the whole um, chapter up there if you could. Uh, the first one. Anyway, the point I'm trying to bring up in verse 6 is that the departure was a departure from Him. You're quick, you, you are so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, the hymn there must obviously be applying to the Father, likely, who's calling us to the Son, and we know the operations of the Holy Spirit is the drawer who brings us to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is amazed that this has happened in the church. So let's look for a minute, just so we can get our bearings here. Um, I want to go to the second slide, Michael, the map. Here we go. Um, Hopefully you can see it, uh, but I want you to, again, be reminded, Paul was commissioned from here uh, in in, um, Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. So Paul and Barnabas, and Paul was called Saul as well at that particular time, were commissioned to go and visit these various places. And this is the direction that the Spirit had sent them to go. This map is not so clear, but it looks like it's the green one here, that arrow, if you can follow it. He went through Tarsus and he comes to Lystra and Derby, Iconium and Antioch. He starts, if we go to Acts 13, and this is very interesting. I love doing this myself and I can't take all that time up to go into the details of Paul's travels in Antioch. But both from Antioch to Iconium, which were the first two cities, he started there, went to Iconium, then he went to Lystra and then he went to Derby. In Antioch, of Pisidia, this is where there was a synagogue. There was a synagogue in Iconium as well. There was not one mentioned in Lystra or in Derby. This, we believe, is the southern part of the province of Galatia. And I mentioned last week that there's, there's differences among commentators whether this area could be considered the area where the churches of Galatia would have resided. But the majority of them do, and I would, I myself think it's the southern section that Paul is addressing here of these people when he's writing to the churches, plural. Now why churches? Because there was a church in Antioch, there was a church in Iconium, Lystra and Derby. So that makes sense that Paul's writing to them uh, plurally as to the amount of churches that were in this vicinity. And this map shows the boundaries of Galatia inclusive, inclusive of them. I had mentioned last week that it was about this time period when the boundaries of Galatia were in flux right, right at this point. So uh, 
geographers and historians are not sure at what particular point Paul was writing to the Galatians when their boundary lines were being designated. So that, I think, is where Paul was going, where he went, and now years later, probably around 51, maybe five or so years later, he's writing this this epistle to all of the four churches. So it's likely that the, the epistle was sent to one church, and that church circulated it to the other church, to the other church, to the other church, so it got circulation among the four churches. Paul didn't write one letter with four cop, uh, three other copies. There was no such thing as copying so quickly back then. It, that was a big project, and it wasn't commonly done. It was an expensive ordeal to try to get a manuscript, uh, a, a, a vellum or a... Sub, uh, or a a papyrus in to write on it. It was a very difficult task and something that scribes would be involved with doing and so on. But there was one epistle that was sent to all of the churches and they all had it at one time or another. So this applied to all of them. So the first thing that Paul says, in from Acts 13 and 14, we read about the might of the gospel. He goes into the synagogue of Antioch and he says, Whosoever among you fears God... To you is the word of this salvation sent. And he goes on to say, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That's a punctuation point on Paul's preaching. This is the only gospel. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, it's through this man that is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And there's no justification under the law of Moses. That's emphatic with Paul. Interestingly, it says they've turned, they received the gospel. As a matter of fact, it says, after Paul's message, it says, and many of the Gentiles, when they heard this, They said, come back and tell us more next week at the next Sabbath gathering. And the Jews were irate about it. Remember, it started in the synagogue. In verse 26, in the synagogue, Paul says this. It's a great way to introduce the message. If you're ever going to preach a gospel to a group of people, I love to preach in the open air with this opening line. Whosoever among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you have no wisdom, you have no knowledge. It's not even a starting point where we can begin. There's no common denominator. But whoever among you fears God, to you... Oh, I can imagine how Paul must have said that. Uh, A George Whitfield style. It's to you who the Word of God is being sent to. And it says many of them receive the Word gladly. And they were saved. They were born again. And it says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad you were ordained to eternal life? That's why you believed. You didn't believe to be ordained to eternal life. You ordained so that you would believe unto eternal life. And to the others that wouldn't, it says, You count yourself, Paul saying to those Jews particularly, "You, You count yourself unworthy of eternal life unworthy of eternal life. In other words, there's a worth that all of us have. It's our soul. What shall profit man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? They didn't count themselves worthy 
of having eternal life. And Paul is saying that to them, that's on your time. That's, that's your call. That's your choice. You're not worthy. You don't think yourself worthy. Okay, so Paul is amazed, he's astonished, he's surprised that they would turn away from this powerful, mighty gospel that saved them out of paganism and out of a faulty Judaism and graduated them to the gospel of the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the epistles we'll see Paul's reaction towards the Galatians in regards to how they turned away. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They were bewitched. But now you know God, or rather are known by God. That's, that's, that's pretty significant there. What he's basically saying there is, your pagan worship in God, your idols, they don't know you, but the living God knows you. Because it's impossible for a statue to know you, but the living God knows you. Uh, but now that you know God, hallelujah, they knew God, or rather are known by God, because a lot of people say, oh, I know God, I believe in God, but you ask, ask them the question, does God know you? Remember in Matthew seven twenty two when he says to them to depart, I never knew you. I never knew you. So if the Lord knows you, hallelujah, you're known of God. That means you're his child. Jesus said, I am come that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We know God because Jesus Christ mediated God to us and we've come to know the true and the living God and Jesus Christ is sent, His Son. How is it that you are turning, there's that expression, you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? How disappointed Paul was that they were turning back 4 verse 11, I'm afraid my labor may have been in vain. Did you really receive the gospel? How could you possibly go back? Was it preached to you in vain? 420, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed, perplexed about you. This perplexing has to do with them who supposedly experienced the might of the gospel, but are now fleeing from the gospel. And here's a final one that I want to show you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Hmm. That's strong language. That, in essence, is what someone is doing. I was... Uh, I met somebody downtown yesterday and um, I asked him about how he got involved with the things of the Lord and so on and he told me he grew up in Puerto Rico and uh, his uh, mother abandoned the family when he was just a toddler. His father died at seven. His older brother was pretty much not much older, was raising them and they were they were living in a uh, a drain pipe, big drain pipe uh, as, as little kids. They ended up moving to Brooklyn and got involved with heavy drugs and crime and was incarcerated for many years. And in 1996, he made a profession of faith through the the, the, the Bible teachings and the gospel that was presented there here in Massachusetts. He professed to have been saved. He went to Bible Institute up in Maine for three years. And uh, then when he finally, after all of that, when he hit the streets again at the year 2000, he says, my life crumbled. 
I went back to my old lifestyle. I said, really? You went back to all that again? He says, but praise God in 2009, 2009, the Lord changed my heart entirely. And he says, here it is, 2021, 12 years going on for the Lord. It's hard to think that people would want to go back. What about Lot's wife? She had the opportunity to go with the angel's directions. Get out of, get out of town. But if you look back, watch out. Jesus says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 Lot's wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt. When I went by the Dead Sea when I was there, I'm thinking, I wonder where Lot's wife is over here. There's so many piles of, uh, of salt that are stacked up here and there. It's amazing what a, what a phenomena that is there. I'm thinking, I wonder if Lot's wife is buried under there somewhere, you know? Have the archaeologists been going after her? But anyway, she turned into a pillar of salt because she turned back. Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. How could it be? God opens the Red Sea. He rains manna down from heaven. He takes water out of a rock. And you want to go back to Egypt and serve those false gods when you come to experience a true and living God? Hmm. No wonder Paul is saying, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you have ex- who have experienced the might of the gospel would want to turn to another one. In a sense, he's saying, shame on you. And he says, not that there is another verse 7, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How serious it is for those who are distorting the gospel. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about, he, about building gold, silver, and precious stone versus wood, hay, and stubble. Those who are sowing the wood, hay, and stubble, they will have judgment brought upon them because it's a serious thing how we conduct ourselves in the house of God and what we teach, what we believe, and what we lead others to think or act or believe. Paul is very much concerned. Not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what unites you and I the most to one another and to other fellow believers that may have less, you could say, or different doctrinal positions on some of the more negotiable areas that don't really play a significance in our most important relationship of union with one another. We have to recognize that. How valuable and how center is the gospel of Christ to my life and to the life of every other believer, and that's what unites us. But unfortunately, there is there were those who were teaching another kind of a gospel, another message that was contrary to the message that they had heard and that what they had believed, and they were enticed to go after it. In verse... What happened here? Mike, I want 510. We'll get it. Okay, here we go. Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one, okay, there was one or ones, at least one, who is throwing you into confusion. Whoever that may be will have to pay the penalty. 
That Paul's laying down the law right here. He's bringing the hammer down. In chapter 2, remember, when he went to Jerusalem and he brought Titus with him, and, and uh, uh, they, they would have wanted to circumcise him, but he says, we didn't give in for a moment that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Because false brethren had come in trying to say, you've got to be under the law to be justified with God. Paul says, I didn't give in, we didn't give in for an, a moment, not even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. There was a high place of value put on the gospel. It's important that we too cleave to the gospel. Sometimes talking to people, wonder myself too, you know, when I'm at that age and that point in my journey where my health goes down and I'm not feeling well and I know that I'm not going to get any better. I'm, I'm in a chronic condition that's only going to get worse and worse and my journey's going to come to a close. I hope that I can, like one brother said, that like the Puritans, they always hoped that when they were in the deathbed, they would still preach the gospel. That it would still be in our lips. After all, heaven is our home anyway. It's not this world that we're living for or should be living for. Verse 8, but even if we, or an, here, here's the emphasis that Paul's putting on. Even if the person, whoever that is, if it was an angel from heaven, not just an angel, because there's all kinds of angels you could say that was circulating, but an angel from heaven, that would be an elect angel, a holy angel, if that angel would preach to you a gospel, gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, let him be cut off, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Sometimes that's the kind of language that we need to use for, for situations that call for that. When you're going to try to injure the gospel of Christ, that's a serious matter. That needs to be addressed. That person needs to be cut off. We had a missionary that was teaching a false gospel that came in our church years ago. We had to say, goodbye, that's false, false doctrine, and it's a damnable one, not believing that Jesus Christ is going to come again in the future. Couldn't be tolerated. It injures the gospel. We couldn't sing the songs that we sing. We couldn't read the Bible fully for ourselves as being inspirational and applicable to us in our current century. Verse 9 is basically a repetition of verse 8. And whenever you see, even in the Proverbs or the Psalms, when, when, when a word or, or a phrase or a saying is mentioned the second time, it's to give you a double impression. It's to place an emphasis on what was said first. Like we would say, I want to repeat that again. Or did you hear what I say? Listen again what I say. That's what the Paul, Paul is saying here. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. You might wonder from some of the passages that we read about Paul's per perplexedness over their departure and falling from the grace of God. Uh, falling away from the grace of God. Uh, that has nothing to do with the losing of their salvation. 
It's that the Christian, the believers in Galatia, have turned aside to a legalistic lifestyle rather than the one that is a grace-driven one. Getting back to verse uh, 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. That's what, we, that's what we have been introduced to. That's what we've been shoved to, towards. The grace of Christ. Second Corinthians verse 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. What is grace? The word grace comes from the Greek word charis, which is best understood to mean gift. Gift. You have been given a gift, and that gift is a final issuance. It's complete. It's definite. You have full possession of it. There's nothing you have to do or add to it to to have it or to keep it. It's already yours. It's a completed gift. So when we think that we can add something to the gospel, and you know, subconsciously sometimes we think that our spiritual standing is not what it should be, and therefore we have to kind of pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and sort of get more religious or maybe read more of the Bible or pray longer or go to church more often, which all are good things, but if we, in our mind, if we think we have to do them to sort of gain God's favor or the approval of our brothers and sisters, then we have really, in a sense, distorted the grace of the gospel. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It has appeared to us before, like the hymn writer says, to work in toil the law demands, but neither gives me feet nor hands. But greater news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. You see, people who put themselves under the law, they're trying to fulfill what the... In- that they're incapable of fulfilling and what God could not require of them to fulfill because they're incompetent to. But God, on the other hand, has provided a way that we can have a perfect and complete acceptance before God in the grace of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13.10 it says, It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with foods. Those things are not going to minister to you. And we all need to examine ourselves too so that we can be standing on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and not on something that we find can try to find inwardly. It's a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with foods which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We can occupy ourselves with something that we think it's sort of like to try to boost our spirituality, to boost our spiritual reputation, to give us sort of a... a uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? To give us a... Uh, uh, like a booster shot or, or something to kind of build you up. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? The athlete it begins with an S. Um, a... Uh, steroid. There it is. A steroid. You know, sometimes we, we look to... Uh, to outward things as steroids to try to build us up spiritually. And what, in essence, we're doing, with, we're sort of saying that the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the gospel of Christ is not sufficient enough. I need to do something to sort of gain it or to be worthy of it. 
It's all a complete package. We've got it in fullness. How can you turn away from the might of the gospel and flee from it to a, a gospel that's not even a gospel? And whoever's claiming to preach another gospel, that one needs to be cut off, needs to be accursed. John, in his prologue about the Lord Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and so on, it goes right down. And then it says this, the Word tabernacled among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it goes on to say, and of His fullness have all we received and grace upon grace. You could say grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's the fullness that we have received. That can't be emptied out of us. That's what's acceptable to the Father. It gives us a perfect standing before Him. With this understanding, it helps us sympathize or empathize with Paul's frustration with the Galatians. And it was to them that he went back and even visited those churches before he wrote this epistle. If you go to Acts 14, right near the end, verse 20 or so, it says they went back and visited the churches of Antioch and Pisidia and Lyconia and Lystra and Derbe. And remember, it was in Lystra where they had stoned Paul. They drew him out of the city. Um, and just before that... Their speech was so impressive to the pagans and the pagan mentality was it must be the gods that have come down and spoken to us. So they wanted to offer different offerings to them and call one Mercury and the other one Jupiter. And Paul says, hold on, hold your horses here. We are, we are people just like you. We are men of like passions. We are made of the same stuff. We have no superior divinity about us that's different than the stuff that you're made out of. We are equal. That was the kind of paganism that Paul came across. So it could be, remember the Gentile churches here, there are Gentiles in these churches. It's not all Jewish, of course, probably more heavily Gentile than, than Jewish because we, if we read those accounts in Acts, we find out that the Jews were the ones that were opposing the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they wanted to cast them out. They wanted to persecute them. But the Gentiles were the ones that wanted to hear the word. So, Apparently, after time goes by, those same Jews that were probably the opponents of the gospel were the ones that were going fishing again back among the Galatian Christians in trying to draw them back into their former lifestyles, to their religious practices. Some of those who were addressed when Paul says, Whosoever among you fears God, it, say, it says right before that, that in that synagogue, there were children of the, of the stock of Abraham, but also God-fearers, devout men of the Gentiles. So there were Gentiles, devout Gentiles, that fed into the synagogues, that filled the seats there as well. So it was many of those, the devout ones they're called, that feared the Lord, many of them, the Lord saved them. And many of the Jews were not, were not saved. They refused the gospel of Christ, and therefore there was this tension. And that tension continued, apparently it, it re, resurfaced years later, and they're trying to draw back those who had come out 
of the systems of men to the gospel of Christ. They're trying to draw them back into it. So, again, Paul's astonishment that after them experiencing the might of the gospel and then them wanting to go away in flight from that gospel, Paul is so in love with the gospel of Christ, it's very injurious to him to think that you could possibly look down on that gospel to this degree that you would be willing to go back to those former ways, those, and we'll get more into that as we go along in chapter 4, those elementary principles of the world. And it's hard to know exactly what, what they were being drawn back into, but we do know that there was a Judaistic push that was trying to, to, to corral these Gentile and possibly Jewish believers as well back into a Judaistic lifestyle. But Judaism now is a pass a religion. Now it's Christianity. Now it's the gospel. Now it's the church. Now it's the risen Christ. Now it's the new high priest. And Gentiles, especially, and Jews more, more, more so, had to understand that that the tabernacle, the temple, that period was all giving way. It's all starting to fade, okay? The new wine can't be kept in the old bottles. Otherwise they would burst. And some were trying to mix the both of them. You have mention of priests in the book of Acts that believed, it says. And it says about those that, uh, uh, many of the Jews which believed, it says, uh, who were under the law in Acts chapter 21 that were putting pressures on Paul that he conformed to Judaistic practices and so on. So this is the tension that is in the book of Galatians. As I mentioned, there were other other difficulties that were going on in the different churches that Paul addresses. And other than Ephesians, all of them have some difficulties. And then Paul's writing to the four in the, uh, the four personal epistles, the two t- Timothys and the Titus and the Philemon, it's basically saying this, be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. Uh, us, um, soldiers are told to endure uh, suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Leaders like Timothy and Titus, they needed that exhortation by Paul and support and saying, I weep over you because of how difficult it is for you to try to steady the ship, as it were, because there too, there were those that were trying to bring in the law. The law was always like trailing, trailing the gospel. And there was always a claw of the, of the law that was trying to get its teeth inside of the truth of Christianity and bring it back unto Judaism. Now, we don't have that problem personally, obviously, we didn't come out of Judaism, so it's not a... Con- but the word of the Lord endures forever. What do we get out of a portion like that? No turning back, brothers and sisters. No turning back. The might of the gospel. What has it brought you to? When I was talking to that brother, I, and I'm still trying to converse with him, what was it like? You know, you were saved in prison, and then you said four years later it crumbled and you went back to your old crimes and drugs lifestyle. Maybe he wasn't saved, I don't know. But I don't want to say that it's impossible for a believer to go back to Egypt. Although the discomfort should be a factor. It should irritate us. If we've got the new, new life of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit of God, we feel that grief. And some that have, have backslidden. Praise God that you're restored. 
But remember how how difficult it was. And you know, it's like you you lose your orientation, you lose your balance, you lose your senses. In some of us, we wonder about our children and, and family members or fellow Christians that were once members of our churches or whatever, and now we wonder, how can they be where they're at? Were they really ever saved? I hesitate to say that they weren't, and I hesitate to say that they were, but I would hope that they truly were and are, and that therefore the desires for the things of God still are there deep down within them, and that in due time that will be resurrected and they will come to their spiritual senses. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to rally the Galatians to understand the gospel, that the spirit is life and the flesh only produces sin. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, its effectiveness, Lord, and truths that we know, Lord, are for us today in ways, though, maybe always, not always identical with the actual receivers of the scriptures for those that were receiving it. But nevertheless, the word of yours, Lord, pertains to everything in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to them, that they would be effective to us, and that, Lord, it would make changes in our lives that would be to your glory and honor. So, Father, now we give you praise, worship, and thanks as we sing this closing song in Jesus' name. Amen.